Hello, I'm CM Conway, the filmmaker of the witty and poignant indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, now on Prime Video, and FunnyFailureFilm.com. On this now monthly podcast, we celebrate funny flubs, bodacious blunders, and miraculous missteps that happen to us as artists. So hone your funny bone and let's get started. Greetings to our podcast, inspired by our bootstrap Bay Area-made indie film, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, a diverse, inclusive film that is a champion of friendship and struggling artists trying to make it against all odds, who comprise, by the way, most of the entertainment industry itself, while spilling a trove of insider secrets about the entertainment capital of the world. The film follows best friends Ellie and Ben and their heartfelt friendship and entertaining journey, flipping failure in outrageous Tinseltown and cultivating a sense of humor along the way. And that's what we try to do on this show. So if you're an artist and you've had a mishap that's happened in your creative journey and you would like to share it on the show, please visit funnyfailurefilm.com and click on share your story. Today's story is Chapter 3 of The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. This is an autobiography of Helen Keller, who was both deaf and blind, and the book was published when the author was still in her early 20s. The chapter unfolds a fascinating journey of Helen's ups and downs in learning to communicate. Coming in contact with a famous figure we know today, who ended up being a light in a very dark tunnel. Several movies have been made about Helen Keller's amazing life. This chapter is performed by George Cooney and is a LibriVox recording in the public domain. The desire to express myself grew. The few signs I used became less and less adequate, and my failures to make myself understood were invariably followed by outbursts of passion. I felt as if invisible hands were holding me, and I made frantic efforts to free myself. I struggled, not that struggling helped matters, but the spirit of resistance was strong within me. I generally broke down in tears and physical exhaustion. If my mother happened to be near, I crept into her arms, too miserable even to remember the cause of the tempest. After a while, the need of some means of communication became so urgent that these outbursts occurred daily, sometimes hourly. My parents were deeply grieved and perplexed. We lived a long way from any school for the blind or the deaf, and it seemed unlikely that anyone would come to such an out-of-the-way place as Tuscumbia to teach a child who was both deaf and blind. Indeed, my friends and relatives sometimes doubted whether I could be taught. My mother's only ray of hope came from Dickens' American Notes. She had read his account of Laura Bridgman, and remembered vaguely that she was deaf and blind, yet had been educated. But she also remembered with a hopeless pang that Dr. Howe, who had discovered the way to teach the deaf and blind, had been dead many years. His methods had probably died with him, And if they had not, how was a little girl in a far-off town in Alabama to receive the benefit of them? 
When I was about six years old, my father heard of an eminent oculist in Baltimore who had been successful in many cases that had seemed hopeless. My parents at once determined to take me to Baltimore to see if anything could be done for my eyes. The journey, which I remember well, was very pleasant. I made friends with many people on the train. One lady gave me a box of shells. My father made holes in these so that I could string them, and for a long time they kept me happy and contented. The conductor, too, was kind. Often, when he went his rounds, I clung to his coattails while he collected and punched the tickets. His punch, with which he let me play, was a delightful toy. Curled up in a corner of the seat, I amused myself for hours making funny little holes in bits of cardboard. My aunt made me a big doll out of towels. It was the most comical, shapeless thing, this improvised doll, with no nose, mouth, ears or eyes, nothing that even the imagination of a child could convert into a face. Curiously enough, the absence of eyes struck me more than all the other defects put together. I pointed this out to everybody with provoking persistency, but no one seemed equal to the task of providing the doll with eyes. A bright idea, however, shot into my mind, and the problem was solved. I tumbled off the seat and searched under it, until I found my aunt's cape, which was trimmed with large beads. I pulled two bees off and indicated to her that I wanted her to sew them on my doll. She raised my hand to her eyes in a questioning way, and I nodded energetically. The bees were sewed in the right place, and I could not contain myself for joy. But immediately I lost all interest in the doll. During the whole trip I did not have one fit of temper, there were so many things to keep my mind and fingers busy. When we arrived in Baltimore, Dr. Chisholm received us kindly, but he could do nothing. He said, however, that I could be educated and advised my father to consult Dr. Alexander Graham Bell of Washington, who would be able to give him information about schools and teachers of deaf or blind children. Acting on the doctor's advice, we went immediately to Washington to see Dr. Bell, my father, with a sad heart and many misgivings, I wholly unconscious of his anguish, finding pleasure in the excitement of moving from place to place. Child as I was, I at once felt the tenderness and sympathy which endeared Dr. Bell to so many hearts as his wonderful achievements enlist their admiration. He held me on his knee while I examined his watch, and he made it strike for me. He understood my signs, and I knew it and loved him at once. But I did not dream that that interview would be the door through which I should pass from darkness into light, from isolation to friendship, companionship, knowledge, love. Dr. Bell advised my father to write to Mr. Anagnos, director of the Perkins Institution in Boston, the scene of Dr. Howe's great labors for the blind, and ask him if he had a teacher competent to begin my education. This my father did at once, and in a few weeks there came a kind letter from Mr. Anagnos, with the comforting assurance that a teacher had been found. This was in the summer of 1886, but Miss Sullivan did not arrive until the following March. 
Thus I came up out of Egypt and stood before Sinai, and the power divine touched my spirit and gave it sight, so that I beheld many wonders. And from the sacred mountain I heard a voice which said, Knowledge is love and light and vision. This story was an insightful array into how Helen Keller experienced the frustration and failure of not being able to communicate, a skill that is easily taken for granted. Listening to the sensorial way she experienced daily life is enlightening, including the enthusiastic way she related to objects and the ingenious way she created eyes for her makeshift doll. Often objects are utilized in films and movies, even books as invaluable items to communicate certain sentiments of a character. This story illustrated that beautifully. It was also very interesting to hear the way a famous figure like Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor credited with the first patent for the working telephone, helped illuminate the way for Helen with a path that led her to connect to her teacher, Ann Sullivan, that would ultimately teach her to communicate with the world and changed her life forever. Films, books, music, theater, and many art forms are powerful methods of communication. We can take deep inspiration from Helen on learning new and innovative ways to communicate and usher this precious cargo out into the world. Thank you for joining us in the How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood podcast. Copyright by Showstoppers and FunnyFailureFilm.com Intro and outro song, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star by David Mumford. Until next time, remember, mistakes makes art more interesting. <laughs>